Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, uh, ratio analysis. Now, this is a, um, there is a formula sheet that is in your ReggieNet resources. And by all means, that is available to you for an exam so that you can take, bring that in as well as your 4x6 note card for uh, the midterm exam. And the purpose there is, as I've told you, I am not really amazed by a person who can calculate a ratio. What I want to see is, do you understand what these ratios are telling us? We let computers and accountants do ratio calculations, and we busy ourselves with the more important task of saying, what do these numbers actually tell us about this company? And that's where my focus is. Of course, you need to be able to calculate the ratios, but you'll have the formulas to do that. And I do caution something right up front is that sometimes you'll have a financial statement that won't have one of the numbers you need for a ratio. And well, so, so there's that. But other than that a little caveat, I do want to look at the numbers as we always do when we come together as a happy family. And uh, this, is a, this is a bad day. This is a bear day. Interestingly enough, you notice the typical pattern, the Dow is down the least, less than 0.2%, and then the S&P 500 is down more, point, almost two-thirds of a percent, and then the NASDAQ is down almost a full percentage point now. Very typical, classic bear day. Now, I have a guest speaker this morning who will come in and talk to you about bull markets. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a real bullish investor, and he wants to make sure you understand his take on this kind of stuff. Look at the price of crude. I mean, that is, I mean, I, I, I talked to a crude trader on Saturday afternoon, and he, well, he's not in anymore, he's retired, but uh, he just said, this is actually a really strong supply uh, supply-driven market right now. He said all of that worry about the choke-off of supply from Russia and the Ukraine and the pipelines that run through those countries in Kazakhstan, he said it's they're flowing and then everyone else cranked up production and so you've got just a lot of supply and that will translate into lower gasoline prices here pretty soon. I do hear that the jet fuel market, the, one of the distillates that comes out of the uh, oil, is still, is, is, they're still scrambling there. There's still a shortage, so that might slow down any price decrease in gasoline through production. However, here's what's interesting. 10-year bond. Yield is up, as you can see, and that means a price is down. So you have investors getting out of equities. That's the price drop, selling of equities. And you have invested the price drop in bonds. They're getting out of the safer haven of bonds. And gold isn't really doing anything spectacular. Silver is taking a toilet break today. So the only place it could be going is back into cash. The heavy investors are pulling back to see what happens next. Coming over here, look real quick at the S&P 500. Um, the average volume, yeah, we're well through, we're past the midday, and the volume is just really slack. Only maybe about a third of what it typically would be over on the whole S&P 500. That's a lot of stocks, and you can see that there's not active trading going on at all. I'll show you something real quick here. If you wanted to invest in the S&P 500, and I'll talk about this more over the next few weeks, you can actually invest in something called an ETF. It is the S&P 500. It's a portfolio, and you can actually invest in it. And of course, it's down today, 
So that's a, oops, no, I didn't want that one. I wanted, this, I did the wrong spider. There are several, you gotta be careful what you do here. There it is. There, there it is. Okay, one share of that is essentially a cut of the whole 500. Total portfolio diversification in one investment. And as you can see, it's down for the day because the S&P. It is just a mirror of the S&P itself. And uh, I, I did this, yeah, see the spider uh, is down today. Trading on that, what, that ETF is down really low. So investors are really staying off the grid right now, waiting to see what's going to come next. A lot of hope that the Fed is finally finished beating us up with uh, one interest rate up, up uh, increase after another, but there's still other factors that are involved too. There's a little skittishness. I don't know how much to take this as fact, but the, the a concern of tensions with China over that balloon that we shot down of theirs. Notice something interesting. Do you see the beta market? It's a market. Essentially, the S&P 500 is so broad-based that it is almost a, an image of the world portfolio. And of course, that would mean it has a beta of 1.00 like the market portfolio does. So that gives you an idea of some of the stuff that's out there. But at the same time, coming over here and very, having a very quick look over on the other side of the uh, Atlantic, in the Pacific, yeah, the FTSE was just bad news, having a grouchy day as well. Earlier, the Nikkei had been up, but by the end, it was starting to fizzle somewhat itself. But whatever's happening in Europe and the United States, the, the Asian markets aren't really too worried or concerned about it, which is good news because if there really were concern about tensions with China boiling over, you would probably see the Nikkei taking a bath, today, uh, bath too. So whatever's making the markets grouchy today, it's a bear market. Now, I, when I, I am generally a bearish investor, and I give that, that indication in class sometimes. But I do want to make sure that I uh, have you talk uh, here from a bull uh, for a while about this. Hi, I'm a bull, Moo, and I'm here to talk to you about bull markets. It is a bull market. Don't let anyone tell you that there is a bear market going on. I have never myself seen a bear, and I tell you right now that they may not even exist. This is a bull market, and it will be a bull market forever, so you should be a bull too, because bulls rule. In fact, I don't think there is even such a thing as a bear ever. Never seen one myself, never will. Can't imagine why there would be a bear market anywhere. Now, a few of the, bull, the signs of a bull market, stocks are going up. Now you're saying, wait a minute, maybe stocks are going down. No, that's not a bear. There is no such thing as a bear. You can't believe that you've ever seen a bear. You'll never find a bear ever. Never has there ever been a bear. Move. No, 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 there's no, there's no bear, there's no bear. Racial analysis.
where was I? Liquidity. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Profitability. <laughs> Debt. Um, asset control. As a matter of fact, let me do something real quick here. I'm going to pull up. <sighs> Not nearly enough jack in that. I'm going to pull up this sheet for you here real quick. And, uh, Okay, ReggieNet. Here, Re financial analysis formulas. Really? Where the hell are my financial analysis formulas? Oh, there. This is the sheet. Now, you can keep this printed out if you wish and uh, have it available for you. And uh, liquidity, debt, and the market value. And Forgot, almost forgot to put down market value. My mind is other places. I'm trying to get back on track here. Okay, these are the four, five areas of concentration that we do, and we have formulas in each one. Like I said, you can pull up these formulas, and there, there are tons of actual formulas. And I'll show you in S&P 500, you have access to the global net advantage, so you can pull up these ratios anytime you want, calculated to as many decimal points, places as you want as well. <coughs> so, I mean, that's no hero's job doing those calculations. What is useful to us, though, as I said, is interpreting them. And one thing that we would want to do in, a, in something like this, and if you want to pull out your Excel, uh, your notebooks and use Excel, you can watch me do this. Excel is excellent for this uh, kind of work here. Uh, I'm going to take an actual company. Excel. And bring up Excel. And then I'm going to go over and I'm going to bring down, well actually, I've got Walmarts right here. I could pull up Walmarts. Um, <coughs> yeah, actually, that's an idea right there. Why don't I just pull up Walmart so you can see this in progress right now. No, I want to come over here and documents. Now that's downloads. Walmart, there we go. Now, w what you do with this, and uh, this there's some reason this sucks. What happened? It's just staring at me. Well, let me not do that then. Apparently, it doesn't want to pull up that Excel. So what I'll do is I'll just do it this way. Um, just go over here to sec.gov. No. And I'll pull up Walmarts again. I can do any company. One thing that I want to watch out for, though, is a company that might have some weird numbers that you have to do some special kind of thinking for. Company filing search, WMT. Oh, and then I'm going to get a 10K, pull up their 10K filing, interactive data. And I showed you how to do this. View the Excel sheet. There you go. Is there some reason why this sucks? <laughs> oh, thank good. 
good, good. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put in, as I did the, what you saw me do the last time, I put in a scratch sheet. Now this one I'm going to put in uh, right here. Uh, don't bloom me. Oh, I see. Okay. Still off my game here. Insert a worksheet. And this one I'm going to, I'm going to call ratios. And that way I've got a, a one-stop place to do the calculations, going, shuttling the sheets around. Now, as you've seen me do before, I like to have the income statement. And then, no, that's not it. Balance sheets, I'm going to put that over here on the other side of the ratios. And then the statement of cash flows. I don't know that I'll need that one for this basic kind of analysis. I'll put it right here. But I'll have all of these together, the income statement, balance sheet, and statement of cash flows, because the ratios use those. Now, ratios, going through them, pulling back up on this sheet that I had here. The first one's profitability. Now, remember what I said, though, is that a lot of companies don't put in um, Oh, it was up there and it just wasn't showing. Okay, let me get this off here. Okay. Walmart's statement of income. As I had said here before, cost of sales, you are going to need the gross income line, because one of our ratios uses gross income. In other words, revenues minus cost of goods sold. So we're going to put one in here, insert, and that will be the uh, gross income. And then what you do is you say that is nothing but your total revenues minus your cost of goods sold. And you got it. And then you drag that over. Did everything look okay? Did I do that right? Yeah, I know. And I, I thought I didn't have that sheet, but uh, apparently it had come up, but it, Excel didn't tell me it came up. So I'm just re, redoing that line. So, okay, so the reason for this is kind of straightforward. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to put 2022 and then 2021. And I encourage you, if you can, follow along with me. But if it gets ahead of you, I'll upload this anyway so that you can do these yourself. Now, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do some profitability ratios. Now, the profitability ratio. The first one that we're going to go to, if you look at this, is gross margin, the one that uses gross income. Now, gross margin, and all that is, if you look at the formula, just follow the formula sheet, it's gross profit over sales. So what I'm going to do is going to, I'm going to say that equals gross profit to, uh, 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 revenues, whoops, I'm sorry, gross um, income, there it is, divided by total revenues. Now that one is telling you that of every dollar that Walmart brings in, the, it, uh, 25, about 25 cents of that survives wholesale cost about 25%. That can be all over the board. You can have companies that keep 80% after uh, gross sales. You can have 10%. It's, uh, you can't really tell much just by looking at that on its own. But that's gross margin, and if we want, we can see gross margin has improved slightly from the year previous. Slightly. Nothing to brag about. 
Now the next one that we'll look at from that sheet is operating margin. Operating margin. Oops. Margin. Really? Okay. And all that is, you just take the operating income. I said op, there it is, operating income divided by the total sales, total revenue or total sales. And that's only four and a half cents. So after all the bills, the regular operating bills have been paid, your wholesale, your light bills, advertising, salaries, everything, Walmart still has, from the revenues, four and a half cents. And that is an improvement over the year previous. That's more of a noticeable improvement than the, year uh, than the gross was. So in other words, they've tightened up their operating costs some. You can see that. It's uh, not spectacular, but there has been some firming of it. Now, going on down, uh, what's the next, whoops. The next one that we would want to see is net margin. And that's the one at the bottom line. Net margin. And that is net profit, net income. Where the hell is it? Consolidated, there it is. Divided by total sales. Only about two and a half cents of every dollar that came into the cash registers survived to the point where it belongs to the shareholders. That's what that is. For every dollar that came in, after all the bills were paid, the shareholders have a residual claim, and that residual claim is about two and a half cents per dollar. Taking it over here, you can see that that is almost completely flat. It hasn't gone up much, hasn't gone down much. The numbers themselves, the accounting numbers, really can't tell us this. If you look at their net income, You can see that it was pretty flat the last few years, but when you look at the ratios, you can see it very clearly. Now, if we want to go down, the next profitability ratio we would look at is ROA, return on assets. Okay, return on assets. And that is I, and I'm going to explain these, and be, listen carefully to the explanations, because that's where I'm going to look for you to talk to me about these things. Return on assets, if you look at the formula for it, you're going to take the net income divided by the total assets. That's going to be equal to the net income, consolidate, there it is, divided by, now this time you have to go over to the balance sheet and find their total assets right there. See why I put those sheets together so that I can shift back and forth for these uh, ref, uh, calls by reference. You can even do it if you've got another, uh, another spreadsheet entirely. You can have two spreadsheets up. As long as you don't separate them sometime accidentally, they'll always do this the way you want. But anyway, now this, now, in other words, if you considered everything of Walmart, all of its assets as a portfolio, then the net income is what that portfolio made. So if you take net income divided by total assets, you're saying, well, the Walmart portfolio of assets returned about five and a, a little more than five and a half percent last year. Which is a somewhat a slight improvement over the year previous. But I mean, that's you know, not a spectacular return on a portfolio. If Walmart, all of its assets are just one ginormous portfolio, 
of, of investments, then that portfolio of investments generated 5.5%. That's all it says. Now, I want to do another one here. This one is return on equity. How much did, whoops, how much did that, if the equity, just the shareholders, what they've put in, is taken, then equals net income. I, why can't I see that right off the bat? Net income divided by, now this time we're going to go down to the total shareholders' equity. Total equity right there. Now, if you're doing these, you might be slower than I am. I'm slow enough as it is. Searching around for the number you want is sort of part of the uh, adventure, as it were. So in this case, we see that the portfolio of equity, the investors, what the owners put in, they got a return of about 15%. Now, interestingly, that's down from the year before. Here's something to notice, and I asked this on a test and a or a quiz, so just know what the answer is, for heaven's sakes. Return on equity will always be bigger than return on assets. Return on equity is always larger than return Return on equity is always larger than return on assets. Return on equity is always larger than return on assets. The reason is kind of simple, because the denominator of return on equity is only part of the denominator for the return on assets. See, total assets is total liabilities plus owner's equity, and total equity is just the one part of that. So that's why that denominator, that denominator will always be smaller than the ROA denominator, and therefore ROE will always be larger than ROA. We'll come back to this in a minute, because this is where you have to think about ratios. Uh, there's a point that I'm going to make about ROA and ROE. A lot of times you'll hear analysts who aren't particularly, they're not older and they haven't done this for a long time, They'll see, ROE, uh, they'll see ROA going through the roof. Oh, it's been rising every year. What a great investment. That ROA going up might not be a good thing. Generally speaking, we like to see ratios go up, at least some ratios. But this is one that might not be a good idea. Now, the dividend ratio. That is the dividend per share divided by the net income per share. So... If we go over here, this one's going to be a little trickier to calculate. Going over here, dividend per share. Now, I'm not exactly sure where their dividend is reported. This is dividend divided by net income. So you can take two approaches. You can take the dividend per share divided by the net income per share, or the total dividend divided by the total net income. And you just have to look to see which one is easier for you to get. Grinding down here. Nope, not going to see it on this sheet, so I'm going to have to start looking around a little bit. Where would you look for dividends in the financials? Got an idea? Say it? Yes. I would look in the statement of retained earnings. Comprehensive income. Consolidated statement of shareholders' equity. Dividends. There it is. Oh, goody. Cash dividends declare. There it is. But notice that that's a negative. So I probably don't want, in other words, it's a cash outflow. I probably wouldn't want it to be a negative, so I'm going to have to do that as an absolute value. So let's do this, unfortunately. I should have grabbed that one when I was thinking about it. Equals, now I'm going to go over here. Where the hell was that? 
there. So I'm going to write that at, whoops, I want to put in an absolute value. I forgot to do that. Absolute value of dividend per share, dividend, cash dividends, right there. Whew. That's too much like work. Divided by, now I go over here and get the net income, chase that one down, net income. Oh, shut up. Consolidated statement of shareholders. Oh, it repeated it. Did it twice. God. So in other words, their dividend ratio is 0.43. In other words, they give about 43% of their net profit back to the shareholders as dividends. My ass, oh, they didn't have the number for the previous year. Now, here's the other one, the plowback ratio. Now, that one is one minus the dividend ratio because they, they give 43 cents to the shareholders, 0.43% to the shareholders, so they must be keeping... Oops, try that again. Equals 1 minus the plowback ratio. So they reinvest, plow back into the company, 56.6%. If they give 43.3% to the shareholders, of their net income to the shareholders, then they would give back 100% minus that they would keep for the internal operations, push it back into the company. And I can't do those because they didn't have the dividends for the year previous on that sheet that I grabbed. Okay, that's that. Nothing big there. So now the next thing. Profitability is done. By the way, you notice that, generally speaking, don't try to do a lot of formatting as you go along. Get the numbers in, then go back and make the nice formatting. And I'll do that in a little bit here if I have the time today. Now the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at this sheet and we're going to look at the liquidity ratios. The liquidity ratios, there's one here that is not in your textbook. It is reported in Standard & Poor's Global Net Advantage, but it's an old one. And I'll explain it here in a minute. The first one, though, is the current ratio. So what, let me uh, put in liquidity. The first one is the current ratio. And all that is, you just take current assets divided by current liabilities. And I'm going through these, and I know this is a really tedious subject. And as a matter of fact, I'm even going to show you where you can get these numbers without even doing these calculations. But current assets divided by current liabilities. This is how many times over, if you had to liquidate your current assets and you had to use that to pay all of your current liabilities, how many times over would you be able to do it? This is telling us that Walmart doesn't have quite enough in current assets to pay its current liabilities. And that was something I mentioned before, and I talked, we did some analysis of that in, um, in my short-term cash management course. Walmart keeps a thin uh, current asset base. It essentially finances its short-term with its current liabilities, which is kind of wild, but they can do it. They're so big. Now, here's the next one. This is called the quick ratio. You'll hear me call it the acid test. That's the old name for it. The truth of the matter is that if I look at this balance sheet up here at the top, see these inventories? 
They are worthless, really. If I had to dump every current asset right now, I would get pennies on the dollar for my inventory. It's just the way it is. As a matter of fact, companies in serious trouble have, they, there, are, there are companies that will buy their inventory and they buy it for nickels and dimes. That's how you see companies like Odd Lots and other companies that just absorb, they buy at cheapo prices inventory from companies that are in trouble, that need to dump inventory to get some cash. And that's what's going on here. So in other words, what we do with this current ratio, this quick ratio, is we say, okay, take all of your current assets, total current assets, I said total, there. But you subtract out the inventories. Then you see what that is compared to your current liabilities. Right there. Oh my. In other words, the acid test is a little bit more realistic. And in this regard, Walmart is down, they could cover maybe about a fourth of their current liabilities with their truly liquid current assets. So that gives us a little bit more perspective. Walmart is very thin on positive liqui on liquidity. They mean it to be that way, that's what they do. Now the last one is the one that you don't see in the book. It's old school and interestingly enough, it has suddenly come back. Think about it this way. Madam, you're in the midst of the zombie apocalypse and you are the CEO of Megacorp and the zombies are at the door. Okay, brains. Okay. So what, what do you do? Well, obviously they want brains so you're not going to throw out your employees from Decatur. Uh, <laughs> easy boy. <sighs> But what you're going to do, I mean, you're throwing stuff out the window. They don't want those. Uh, that's inventory. Uh, and there's, there's just uh, accounts, um, uh, accrual, accrued accounts. Uh, don't want those. They want cash and cash equivalents. That's all they want. So you have, in a crisis, the only thing you've got that they want is cash. That's just, that's it. That's it. You know, I had kids, they didn't want my love, they didn't want my car, they just wanted money so they could go buy drugs. That's not true. That's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. So what I'll do here is I'm just going to say equals, I'm going to just find the pure cash and equivalence and divide that by the current assets. Because at the end of the day, if they really had to get their bills paid, their current liabilities paid that day, the only thing that's going to be worth anything for them is their cash. Oh, bleh. oops. Uh, I screwed up. I put that in the wrong place. Okay, so this is the burn test. It's called the burn. And I can do two years of that. Now, see, one of the things is I can do, the income statement has three years, but the balance sheet had only two years. That's why I'm chasing down two years here. Now, there's a small story behind this. A uh, couple of years ago, there was a company. It was dying by conventional wisdom. And it was pretty much, uh, it, it was one of those that these giant Wall Street firms were short selling. They were just doing it every week. They were using it as a, a dead horse that they just kept beating for a little more horse meat. They, was, they were having, making a couple of million every week or two off short selling the stock of this company. But then there was this one analyst that uh, she was a relatively young analyst. She wrote an article, she wrote a quick uh, analysis of the company. She said, this company is swimming in cash. It's got like $6 billion in just cash. It has hardly any inventory. It has, doesn't have a very good business plan, although they've replaced all the top management. She said, this company can't die. It's got all this cash. 
It can live forever off, off that, almost. Well, she wasn't very well noticed at first, but then something strange happened, and a low-life place called Wall Street Bets mentioned the company. It was called GameStop. She was right. GameStop wasn't a dead company. It was a company waiting to be brought back to life. It had all this cash it was swimming in. And she said, why, do you, why does everyone think this is going to be a dead company? Because she was looking at this burn ratio was stupidly high. It was nearly, it, it was way above one, which, is, uh, which was pretty wild. But that gives you an idea that this is a useful thing. Yes? You just take cash divided by current liabilities. Cash, oh, well, cash and equivalents by, by current liabilities. In other words, what would happen if all you had was cash to pay your current liabilities right now? And that's why it's old. Like I said, I hadn't seen anyone use it in a long time. And there she was using it. And now it's beginning to be noticed a little more, although the academic textbooks don't seem to be mentioning it. Yeah, go ahead. I'll have to look. Let me see. Equals, let me go back here. Cash and equivalents divided by current liabilities. Yeah, keep an eye on me. I so suck at this. Yeah, it is a little lower. And then this one I'd have to fix too. Interestingly, notice that their burn ratio, Walmart's burn ratio, has dropped. I mean, this is a company that just doesn't use liquidity, and they don't have to. Essentially, you, you don't want to see this like this in a normal company. But a company on the scale of Walmart actually finances its operations through its suppliers. Another company that does that is Apple. They are so big that they can make their suppliers carry the weight of liabilities for the company. It, it, I mean, it, you don't want to do that unless you have extraordinary power over your suppliers, which both Walmart and Apple do. But anyway, enough of that. Thank you for that correction. Watch out for my, me hitting, talking and chewing gum at the same time. Okay, so now, let's go back over here. And we're going to look at the debt. Debt. And the first one that we want to do is simply the debt to total assets. Equals, okay, debt to total assets. Now, Here's the thing about this one. Be cautious because the, your homework in Cengage gives you a little window on this. But realistically, oftentimes when we say debt, that's going to be your debt divided by your total assets. Not liabilities, total liabilities, just debt. Whoops, I did two equal. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over here and I'm going to look at their long-term debt. There it is. And I use that one. Some people say you should also add in your current portion of long-term debt. Don't, unless you're told to do that. Just use your long-term debt divided by your total assets. So in a very real sense, Walmart is an unlever uh, is a low leverage company. Leverage refers to how much debt you have compared to equity. So I could say that Walmart is about 14% debt and 86% equity. That's actually a fairly low leverage. A lot of companies use more leverage, and there's a good reason why you want more leverage because you get something called gains to leverage. Gains to leverage works like this. When you borrow money and use just a little bit of yours, when your investment goes way up, you pay a fixed amount on debt, and all the rest of that is 
owner's property, owners. And so a lot of companies like to leverage themselves somewhat more or a lot more. As a matter of fact, in a subsequent lecture, and I'm not even exactly being facetious about this, I can show you how to become a millionaire within about five years, a multimillionaire. It's been done many, many times using gains to leverage. Walmart is a conservative company. They don't want a lot of debt in their portfolio. Here's the thing. The other one is in the debt category is times, interest, earned. This is how many times over you can pay your interest with the money that's available to pay the interest. So what I do there is I go over here to the income statement. Okay, to the income statement. Where the hell is the income statement? There it is. Okay, interest. Your interest expense. See the operating income? That's how much you've paid all your other bills and now you have to pay your interest to your bondholders. So we say, all right, take that earnings before interest in taxes, operating income, and divide that by how much net you have to pay in, in, net, uh, in uh, interest expense. That. They can pay their interest expense more than 14 times over. They have... They have $25.9 billion. The next thing they have to do is pay their interest, which is $1.8 billion. So in other words, $25.9 billion divided by $1.8 billion is about 14 times over. Now, that again is indicative. That ratio is on the high side. In other words, they could borrow more money. They could afford to pay the interest on it. They just don't do it. You begin to get a little worried when you see times interest earned getting as low as two or three. If times interest earned is below one, the company is in default. Again, if times interest earned dips below one, the company is in default. One more time, if times interest earned is below one, the company is in default because what it has to pay interest is not enough to pay the interest. <laughs> the last part, you don't have enough interest, you don't have enough money to pay interest as you have interest to pay tell you a, a, a quick one about, now I always, I always ask this on a midterm somewhere, so it's worth you knowing. Let me give you a, a real world example of this. Uh, I think it was either last year or the year before that. A company that started here in uh, this area is Steak and Shake. You, you know Steak and Shake, right? Now Steak and Shake was expanding rapidly. They were doing some pretty wild things, but they were really hurt by the lockdown. I mean, it was just a bad situation all over the place. And they made some really questionable moves. They cut their menu down and then they announced, and they started getting so desperate that they started offering franchises, Steak and Shake franchises for $10,000. I mean, that's just, <laughs> No one offers a franchise for that little price. Uh, well, maybe some do, but they were doing everything they could because it was clear that they were in trouble. And then the news came out that they had a payment and some kind of an interest payment due. I think it was an interest payment. And we, we were looking at, they don't have enough money to do this. They just don't have the money. In other words, times interest earned our forecast was that that was going to be below one. In other words, you remember what I said, if you can't pay your uh, bondholders their interest payments, what they can do? 
they, if you don't pay your bond uh, interest, the bondholders can shoot your dog, sell your Bible on Craigslist, and make your parents wear furries. They can destroy you. They just shut you off. That's all it is. You don't have to do anything for your shareholders. But man, if you do not pay your bondholders, they are in bankruptcy court the next day to seize your assets. They'll liquidate the company. And we were thinking, oh God. And of course, the company would quickly file for Chapter 11 protection from that. And we were saying, here comes the fund. Somehow, Stake and Shake managed to scrape together the money and it might have been from some kind of uh, an, some investor, but they managed to actually pay that, that looming disaster. So they survived that bullet. But that's how serious you want to keep pay attention to that time's interest earned. If it just starts even drifting toward one, uh, then you get, uh, you get worried. And that's why some companies want to keep this kind of Distance. They want to be on the other side of the galaxy from a times interest earned of 1.0. And Walmart, obviously, there's no question. Walmart's fine. It's never going to go bankrupt. It's never going to default on anything that it doesn't want to. Now, pulling on here, and this is my first pass, and we'll just, I'll just keep talking about these ratios as time goes on. You go over here, asset activity. Asset activity has a long and checkered history. I call it asset control, but they, the book and a lot of people call it asset activity. Okay, now the first one, this one is tough. You might not be able to calculate this one with a quick look at the numbers. They're, um, well, look at the formula. That is your accounts receivable over your average day credit sales. And that is really hard to find. The accounts receivable is easy. It's right there on the, on the balance sheet. But your average daily credit sales, that's probably not going to be on a typical income statement. If I look up here, yep, see that? It's not there. And so you would have to suddenly start running around. You might find it in the statement of cash flows. I don't know. Receivables, inventories, net cash, cash flows from investing. Uh, nope. From financing. Nope, you're not going to find it there. Good grief, it's not, you're, you're going to have to dig for that one. And so that's one of those where we just simply say FTS. We're not going to do it. Now the homework gives you the number so you can easily calculate it. But in our real, real terms, it's not as easy to find as a lot of other numbers. So I'm just going to pretend that one doesn't exist, which I do every semester. But this one, oh, we want to know this one. Inventory turnover. This tells us how many times a year the company clears all of its warehouses, at least in, uh, on average. So in this case, I'm going to take, and you look at the formula, the formula says take sales over inventory. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to say, equals, is there some reason why I'm chasing these around? Net sales, well, we'll just do the total, divided by the inventory. They completely turn over their inventory 10 times a year. In other words, about a month and a, about every five weeks, <coughs> excuse me, they wipe out their inventory and replace it. Now, there is a general rule that the higher the inventory turnover ratio, the better. Because the faster you're turning over your inventory, 
the less warehouse space you need. That's basically the big thing. Inventory turnover ratio, you get it higher and higher. You get to a system, and you'll have to tell me, have you ever been told about the just-in-time system? It's, uh, it, essentially, it was the Japanese who kind of invented the just-in-time system. In other words, there actually is not any inventory. When they need something, they just get it. Instead of warehousing, they just pull it in. And so you get an inventory turnover ratio that is basically infinity because the denominator inventory is zero. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the Japanese car companies were the ones who invented it. And here's the interesting thing. Back in the later 1980s, the US auto manufacturers were getting their asses kicked by the Japanese auto manufacturers. And so we decided we have got to do this ourselves. It's, it's got to be this just-in-time system that is doing this. Well, the odd thing was about that that we, a couple of our auto companies started moving toward it. The whole key to the Japanese system is that the suppliers of the car parts are built in a ring around the main plant that builds the car. I need a car door. It's produced by the supplier and it's brought right to the shop floor. That fast. That's how the system worked in Japan. Well, we tried to do that too with a couple of our car manufacturers, notably in Detroit. And here's what happened. What, once sales began to fall on the central uh, auto manufacturer, this ring of suppliers around it went into the crater with the main company. Well, why doesn't that happen in Japan? Because Japan's system doesn't let that kind of thing happen. It is a Koretsu kind of environment where everything is owned in some mutual sense. So no one is going to fall down. We don't do it that way. Sink or swim. You did this because you chose to do this, they said to the suppliers. And in Detroit, the main plant fell, so the loss of salaries, and then all the suppliers who had dedicated themselves to that car manufacturing facility, suddenly they were out of work and their people fell down. And so the whole of Detroit started to fall into a massive crater because all of those companies were dependent upon a company in the middle that couldn't keep itself together. And that was one of the big things that happened in Detroit and some other places. Why? Because we don't do business the way the Japanese do. And we're not going to change but we, we've adapted and we're working more that way. If you look at the inventory system now, we, you will see those inventory uh, turnover ratios going up. There is a problem with this though, a large problem. Increasing your, internal, I, I, your inventory turnover system has a major problem in it. And you all saw it. You see, because if I am getting rid of my inventory, selling it as fast as I get it in, what happens if there's a supply chain bottleneck? OMG, the whole idea falls apart. Well, we need more toilet paper on the shelves, uh, Earl. Uh, well, I ordered them, but they said they can't supply them. Oh, well, we got people out here beating on the doors. There's a guy who's got an AR-15. He's going to shoot us if he don't have his poop scoop. Uh, and so that was what happened was that when you increase those inventory turnover ratios, you didn't have anything in the warehouse when you sold out the first lot, if there was a supply chain disruption. That giant ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, that pretty much collapsed the whole supply chain because every company, well, most companies, they thought that the faster they sold out what was in their warehouse, the better. We ain't going to hold any extra in there. That's just extra uh, cost of uh, warehouse space. Well, guess what? You had uh, warehouses that were empty and nothing was filling them in. 
And so the whole supply chain, when things began to break, it took weeks and weeks to refill the whole supply chain because everyone's warehouse along the supply chain was empty because of high inventory turnover ratios. So always be cautious. Numbers can lie to you or they can mislead you. Sometimes, yes, inventory turnover ratio goes up. That's a great thing. But at the same time, recognize that there's always a problem with something that's that, that, that is that fabulous. Now, pulling over here, you've got your total asset turnover. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you notice that I stopped and I looked at both of them, and since I saw that um, those memberships, there is a reason why that is part of the general the revenue of the corporation. It's not a major part. Now that number had been big. Let me show you that. If that number had been big, I would have spent a little bit. See how small that is. I mean, I include it simply because it was a minor thing and it did, in, did contribute to their overall revenues. And technically, those memberships are a type of inventory. Technically. Uh, a, a, an interesting kind that you might learn about in your operations management classes. But that's a valid question. Some would say, no, you don't ever include those kinds of subscriptions and memberships and all of that. Others say, absolutely, you, you include them. So, yeah, I'm going to deflect your question and say, I did it because I just was lazy and I didn't want to think too much about it. <laughs> so, it's a valid question, though. Well, let me do the total asset turnover. Total asset turnover is pretend that your whole company, all of the assets, are a thing. How many times over do we turn that total asset base? Now, uh, so I would say equals total asset turnover. Total asset turnover, and that would equal your total assets divided by your inventory. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me check something here. Did I see that formula? Yeah, it's right. Total sales divided by total assets, yeah, that's right, equals total sales, which would be this total sales divided by the total assets. Total assets. They turn over the whole friggin' company uh, about every five months. 2.3 times a year, the entire assets of the company are turned over. That, that, I mean, that's almost staggering uh, in a way because, I mean, some companies have that well below one because they have such a massive infrastructure base. But in a case like this, good grief, they are flipping, basically flipping the company, selling everything in the company, and then bringing all that company back together again every five months. So there's that on it. And then price to earnings ratio. Now you've already seen this one. You take the price per share divided by the earnings per share. And I'm not going to do that one here because that price changes from day to day. And you're not going to find it in the financials. You have to go to someplace like Yahoo Finance to find the price. There is one, though, that is of interest to us. The market to book. The market to book, you take the market capitalization. And that's not going to be here because there are accounting statements. I have to go over here to Yahoo Finance to do that one. What is the, mar what is the market cap? Uh, well, WMT, what's the market cap? It's 3.7855, uh, no, 378.55 billion dollars. 
378.55 billion divided by the book value of Walmart. And I look down here to the total uh, shareholders' equity. Where the hell is that? Oh, there it is. 91 billion. Did I do that? Wait. Oh, those are not in the same units. 3.88. Let me try that again. I'm going to have to fix that because divided by, let me take the consolidated balance sheet. Point, that would be nine. Oh, that divided by. No, that should be right. Oh, that's in thousands of, so those are millions. Divided by a thousand. Sorry about that. They are, you got to watch that. That can kill you. Oh, shut up. Get off me. Oh, well. I'll do that one next time. For now, that's plenty for you. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.